0: I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, uh, pure bliss. Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
1: Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, or well, welcome to the of podcast. It's Friday, July 8th. On this week's episode, we're going back into the archive to revisit one of my favorite conversations with Ian Rogers, the former Chief Digital Officer at LVMH and now Chief Experience Officer at Ledger. Last summer, we spoke in a conversation about the future of the metaverse and what it means for fashion. So much has changed since then. There have been so many more developments in the fashion industry around virtual fashion, NFTs, and cryptocurrency. But this conversation provides a fundamental basic understanding of how this new frontier might develop. Here's Ian Rogers on the BOF podcast. Ian, how are you? I'm good, thank you. It's been a crazy, difficult, challenging 16, 17 months. How has this period been for you personally and professionally? You made some big changes. Yeah. But, you know, just a, a reflection on the last 16 months.
2: Yeah, we started last year really ambitious at LVMH. I mean, we had, we had said with Ben, I know, that we wanted to make a huge commitment to artificial intelligence and data as a company. We'd set aside a big budget for that and then... February March things really started to change you know and we stopped a ton of things that we were doing just because the future was so uncertain at the same time for us on the digital team it was really exciting because we went from you know eight percent of the business to a hundred percent of the business you know virtually overnight and we had these pieces of the business like we had an e-commerce committee that met every six weeks and we went from every six weeks to twice a week and it was great because a lot of the things that we'd put in place over the previous five years were really useful we built some of the scaffolding you know we had good e-commerce businesses that became great e-commerce businesses you know when i looked around the table at the e-commerce committee almost nobody who was you know, kind of in that Zoom room had been in the company five years previous. You know, so there were really big changes and they were really visible at the company. So that was great. And also for me personally, it was the end of five years. And I'd always said three to five years was what I had planned um, at LVMH. To me, the, this, this narrative around cryptocurrency had gotten stronger and stronger. And the pandemic to me accelerated that as well. You know, not only were we all living in metaverses, but you know, you've got. Lots of stimulus coming from the, you know, the U.S. government, European government, and I think that that impacts the way that we think about digital currency. And then China used the opportunity to move really forcefully into their central bank digital currency, the yuan. So to me, that just said, okay, the game theory's on. This cryptocurrency thing really starts now. Mm.
1: Before we get into the cryptocurrency, I want to talk a little bit about what you managed to accomplish at LVMH. I remember you know, our first meeting I think it was 2015, shortly yeah. after you joined. And, you know, you arrived at LVMH and it was a really different place from the way you left it, just in terms of kind of embracing technology. And with your background in the music industry, you helped oversee the digitization of music. You're a part of that movement. What are your reflections now on the digitization of fashion?
2: Well, I think it's, it's super interesting, you know, because music went from being 0% digital it was all compact discs which by the way are digital but from a distribution perspective zero percent to a hundred percent effectively you know you have a vinyl market etc but really the distribution of music is all streaming i mean there were so many lessons in that one of them being that the industry was incredibly resistant to it until it was really necessary for them to be, to embrace it, but I, I think it's it's actually quite different in fashion because the retail experience is so much of you know kind of the act of buying fashion, everything from discovery to shopping. Oh, that's a big part of kind of the experience of fashion. I actually think that the luxury industry was smart to not commoditize the experience. I think if in the previous fifteen years they had kind of gone down the Amazon path and just kind of made it about like oh it's, it's you know a bunch of you know products in a grid and then check out and so i think to really try to preserve that customer experience was really smart and i actually think that the pandemic was super helpful to kind of get people across the transom because a lot of the things that were precious for no reason Right, They just got exploded. They said, well, wait, how do we offer a luxury experience at a distance? Because the fact is, it is luxury to have a conversation with your sales associate over WhatsApp and to feel like it's really personal. And then the product shows up at your door. That, that actually feels great. There's nothing sort of cheap feeling about that. So, I think that, that on the fashion side, it, the challenge has just been how do you approximate a luxury customer experience online? And I don't think that's trivial because, you know, brands are doing really well online. They're selling well online. But, you know, the NPS scores online are not the same as the NPS score of walking into a Louis Vuitton store or a Dior store because I mean, there's no one, you know, kind of greeting you in your web browser and saying, hello, would you like a glass of champagne? You know, it's just not quite the same. But I think that, you know, the industry has come a a long way. I think the main things that we accomplished at LVMH would be around just rationalizing how do you sell? You know, what is the difference between selling direct to consumer, selling on Net selling on Farfetch, having an affiliate such as, you know, list.com drive the sale. I think five years ago there wasn't a lot of understanding around that even the, the differences between those Pathways, and I think that we we rationalize those into something that really makes sense. The other is around data and artificial intelligence. How can we use data to serve the customer? That was really the the big question. I think, you know, that commitment that we had hoped to make in 2020 on data. LVMH has made this year. They've announced a partnership with Google. They've, you know, they're really, you know, I think using data in a very smart way at LVMH now. And then I think the third thing is that customer experience thing. How do you do clienteling at a distance? What is the software that's in the hand of the sales associate so they know the customer, they know the inventory, and no matter where that product is in the network, you know, oh, I'm sorry, it's not in the store we're standing in right now, but we do have one in Rome, can I have it to you tomorrow? That has come a long way in the last five years as well.
1: There are still some brands, maybe not LVMH brands, but Chanel is one that has said no e-commerce. What do you make of that in this time when there was a time over the last 16 months when no one could shop in a store?
2: Look, we need to recognize that we're, we're dealing in a inventory constrained environment. So if Kanye said, the only way you can get my new shoe drop is you have to drive to a warehouse in New Jersey, he would still sell all of them, right? So I think when you're in that environment, you can choose how you want to reach the customer. From my perspective, that's not how I would approach it. I would really approach it by looking at the customer journey. You know, what I learned in music is you ignore what it is your customers want at your own peril. We knew that people wanted to listen to digital music in 1998, and the record labels were in denial on that fact until 2005. And that cost them 50% of the market cap (laughs) of recorded music. So from my perspective, you ask your customers, you know, what do you want? And then you find the way that's on brand to give it to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that you definitely can. I mean, if you look at what Louis Vuitton is doing, Dior, Fendi, they're not sacrificing any of what their brand means to the customers. I I would say it's the opposite. I think, you know, again, if you've got a sales associate who can FaceTime with a customer, is that e-commerce? I would say yes, someone else might say no, because when they think e-commerce, they just think like add to cart, check out, PayPal, and that's e-commerce, but you should be reaching your customers wherever they are and however they would like to be reached.
1: So before we move on to crypto, because I'm really interested in that, you came from one major cultural industry, music, and you moved into another major cultural industry, fashion. I'm curious, as someone who came from the outside, What do you see as a kind of the role or influence or meaning or purpose of fashion in our culture, in our business, in our society? With your lens of having come in from the outside, what do you think is the role of fashion in our culture today?
2: Well, I think it's also interesting to think about how that role has changed in the era of the internet, right? But I think that, you know, look, like music, fashion is primal. We have this some sort of primal instinct to be individuals. And fashion gives us that power, right? It gives us the power to be who we are. I always say that I, I feel lucky that I came from skateboarding and punk rock because I feel like it gives me a certain perspective on it, that it's not just about luxury fashion, it's about individuality and expressing individuality. And I think that anyone who is in the business of expressing individuality has done incredibly well in the last 15 years. You know, anyone who helps you say, I'm part of this tribe and I'm not part of that tribe does great in the era of Instagram and TikTok, you know, whether that's fashion, luxury fashion, tattoos or makeup, right? It's all sort of part of that same kind of primal urge to say who we are because we're all sharing who we are and kind of an unprecedented clip. It's not like you have your little circle of friends and you take photos and you put them on your wall and then people come to your house to see them. It's like you post online and, and you see or with TikTok, I mean, it's truly broadcast medium. So you have this ability to go from zero to 50 million views quite quickly. So when you have that, who you associate with matters. And what you wear kind of says who you are and what tribe you belong to and and that sort of thing. So I think it plays a bigger role in culture than at any point in human history because of the internet, actually.
1: Do you think that it's recognized as such by mainstream business, mainstream media? Because my observation is for a long time, maybe even now, people still don't realize fashion is this two and a half trillion dollar global business that touches every human on the planet in some way or another.
2: No, I I agree. I think there's a lot of denial of that, especially, you know, where I spent the 20 previous years in California. It is almost a denial of that fact, right? They, They try to make it a commodity, right? Even though they're all participating in that economy every day. But I also think that that's a place where luxury fashion gets a little lost too, is because it's sort of like the same way that country music only thinks about country music in Nashville, luxury fashion is a little too insular and it thinks too much about luxury fashion when really they are in the identity game. And they're in it in a big way with a global audience. You know, whether that's you know American audiences of, of all means of income, China audiences obviously, or you know, it's it's really it's got a global context today that goes far beyond kind of what we think about as the world of fashion.
1: Mid-pandemic, November 2020. You made this big move to this company I had never heard of before. So can you tell us what Ledger is and what was it about that opportunity that drew you away from LVMH and the world of luxury fashion into this space that's now really exploding and everyone's talking about it, but very few people actually understand?
2: So I got lucky because it's a personal story. I'd been following along for a while just because I'm a geek. Um, but also when I moved here, I made friends with a guy named Pascal Gauthier who ended up becoming the CEO of Ledger. So I kind of had five years to ask him all of the questions that are normal. Like, Wait, what is this? Why do we need this? What you know? And so it was a long osmosis for me, but it's also one of those things where it really is a rabbit hole. And I'm yet to meet an intelligent person who, you know, ventures into this rabbit hole and comes out unchanged. So for me, I I have thankfully had a long time to, to go down it. But what Ledger does in particular, and the reason that I thought Ledger was a unique opportunity in this overall crypto space is Ledger is secure storage for cryptocurrency and digital assets that then provides a secure gateway into the world of cryptocurrency. So you can, whether you're buying cryptocurrency or trading cryptocurrency or exchanging NFTs or all of these things you want to do with your crypto, It is the most secure place to do it. So what I realized after a long relationship with Pascal was that to kind of buy Ledger as an opportunity, I didn't have to buy the Bitcoin story or the Ethereum story or the fill in the blank. It was actually you just had to believe that cryptocurrencies would be real or that digital assets would be real and that security would be a big problem in this space. And I think both of those things are, they're no-brainers, even if you think that the currencies are going to be a digital euro or a digital dollar or an yuan, we are definitely going to have digital forms of money. Right? I love it when Naval Ravikant says, Of course, the internet is going to have its own money. Thinking otherwise is like thinking that La Poste or the U.S. Postal Service is going to deliver your email, right? Money is technology and technology innovates. So to me, Ledger is this great opportunity where, you know, that, that is like kind of a low beta on the entire world of cryptocurrency and security and privacy, all of which I think will have more importance in the future than they do today.
1: Okay, so say I didn't understand anything of what you just said, because I don't know any of those words. Mm -hmm. Imagine, and maybe you had to do this. Explain what a chief experience officer at Ledger is to your mom. Okay.
2: I would start by saying, by the way, yes, I've done this. Uh, um, And does she get it? Well, did she understand my job at LVMH? I don't know. You should ask her. Um, Well, I would say, okay, mom. First of all, you just have to believe that there will be digital assets. We have this new thing, critical digital assets. So now, for the first time, you have something digital that you could lose. It's kind of the opposite of what we experienced in the first 15 or so years of the internet, where the internet was about unlimited distribution, right? The great thing about the internet was, if I'm making a magazine, I don't have to print 50,000 copies, I can have a URL and anyone can come. Well. Digital assets are sort of the inverse of that, where you can actually have a scarce digital good. But what that means then is you can lose it. And it's not like if I lose my MP3 file, you just send me another one because it was just a copy of a copy anyway. It's a unique digital piece and if you lose it, it's gone. So the question is how do you protect that? And that's what Ledger does, is it protects that value, long story short. What a Chief Experience Officer is, is anytime there's new technology, The experience is not great. There's a road to build. I mean, if we go back to the internet in 1996, 1997, I I, I didn't say come to my website. I had to start with, there's this thing called the internet. And the way you get on is you buy a modem. And then you get an ISP. And then you get this thing called a web browser. And then you know you really had to like start at the beginning. And that experience really needed to be improved. And that's why something like America Online did incredibly well in the early days of, of the web, which is the same reason that something like Coinbase will do incredibly well in the, in the early days of cryptocurrency. When you can give people a very simple on-ramp, then you can just simplify that experience. But over time, you have access to like the entire world of cryptocurrency. America Online was not access to the entire internet and Coinbase is not access to the entire world of cryptocurrency. So we have to improve the experience on the way there. So with Ledger, we sell a piece of hardware, which is a companion to your mobile phone. So Um, it's a
1: physical thing.
2: Yes. You know, the the bottom line is our phones are great and they do all kinds of amazing things, but they're fundamentally Web 2 devices that are meant to email, apps, um, the web, etc. And they're really bad at protecting value. The same thing that makes them great is what makes them dangerous for protecting a lot of value. So what you have here is a device with a secure chip, secure memory, secure screen, and you you use it to protect your digital asset value. If you lose this, you have a backup recovery phrase and you can recreate it. The backup recovery phrase is actually the thing that you have to kind of protect the the most rigorously because if somebody gets their hands on it, they can get their hands on your value. But as long as you have that in a safe place, you can walk around with this very safely.
1: I heard this podcast in London about someone who lost their code or something and it was in a landfill somewhere and they were trying to convince the local government to let them dig up the landfill because ledger helps to protect against situations like that
2: i mean look and ledger's been around for seven years so that person could have used the ledger probably back then but i think that people you know once upon a time people thought ah this is just fun i'm just playing around they didn't imagine that someday those 10 bitcoins they had would (laughs) would be worth what they're worth today but this is also part of it this is and you asked me what it means to be a chief experience officer when you buy an iphone you're not buying a piece of hardware. You're buying the Apple experience, right? And the idea is is that when you buy a ledger, you're not just buying this little piece of hardware, you're buying this entire experience. The experience that not only keeps you secure, but also, hey, I wanna do something today. I wanna bid on, I just saw this NFT, I want it. I just got a digital asset from my favorite brand. Where do I store it? Because again, I think about, I would love to have an NFT of that concert t-shirt that I had in 1992. You know? At the time, I probably would have thought, like, who cares, it's just a concert t-shirt. When I look back on it now, it has significance to me and it probably has value. I mean, I'm sure on eBay, it has value. And so now we know that this is what happens over time. And I think that we will have digital objects. You know, I did a conversation with two tattoo artists a couple of weeks ago, Scott Campbell, who I think, you know, yeah. and, and Mr. Cartoon, who is yeah. one of the most followed tattoo artists in the world. He's not the most quote unquote digital person in the world, but he said it really succinctly. He's like, look, I did the tattoo on 50 cents back, which is on the cover of Get Rich and Die Trying. Imagine if at the same time we had minted an NFT of that. What might that be worth today? course like you know you have these like moments you know moments that have meaning and and they will they will have even more meaning in the future i think it's just again we talked about with fashion we have this desire to express ourselves but people have you know a a desire to collect 40 percent of people collect something i collect vinyl some people collect precious moments figurines we collect as as human beings so there's sort of like the value side of it i think and then the collecting side as well
1: You know how you did that architecture of a URL and a website and a, the way I've tried to understand it is there's blockchain technology and on top of that, there's crypto technology and on top of that, there's NFTs and on top of that, there's this opportunity around virtual fashion goods. Mm -hmm. Can you just as concisely as possible explain how those things work?
2: Sure. What we have that's new, again, is this notion where we can have digital scarcity. That's the main thing. The main way to think about it is that that's like the real invention. We also have digital scarcity without needing a trusted source in the middle. So you could could have this and it could be kind of protected and provable, even if that company goes out of business. And for, for those of us who had, you know, our photos at Flickr, Once upon a time, I still do actually have a lot of photos there. You know, that that kind of thing scares us. You know, I do this with this company today, but what happens... 15 years from now, 20 years from now, will that company be here? Will that company be owned by somebody who is unfriendly to me? I don't know, you know, what what might happen. So what we have with this ability, you effectively have programs which can never be turned off, is really the way to think about it. They aren't owned by anyone and they can't be turned off because that's what's happening is these programs are running in this big consensus network. It sounds science fiction. Like if, if it sounds science fiction, then you're getting it. Because it really is, and it, it is a very big deal, that this is a, a new invention. What we really have then is kind of applications on top of that. And so some of the applications that people are making, I mean, some of them are games where instead of having this thing that you own lives only inside of one game, well, it could be portable from game to game. And then we also then you know have the notion that I sell you this object And now you can prove that you are the owner of that object. And you can actually sell it to someone else if you would like. Like a physical
1: object or a digital object or both?
2: Both. And, and, And really, so what you could have is you could have proof of attendance, right? So I went to this art show. And now everyone who went to that art show five years ago is welcome to this thing, right? So you could have kind of proof of attendance or you could have proof of purchase. I buy a pair of Doc Martens shoes and now I have a Doc Martens skin in Fortnite. That kind of transition is really, I think, where where we are with these things. So I think the best way to think about it is you have scarce digital goods and you can do whatever you'd like to with those. You could say, that's a piece of art. That's proof of attendance. That's proof of purchase. That's a scarce digital good. That's a one of 10. That's a one of 1000. That's a one of one. You can kind of do it however, however you would like. And it is similar. You know, I think, you know, we have photos on the wall here. That one is a one of 10. That one is number two of 10. And, you know, Russell Simmons from Def Jam has number one of 10. And those are meaningful w- within that. I also don't have any guarantee that my friend Glenn, who's the photographer, didn't print 50 of them. But with the blockchain, you actually can have that guarantee. You can say, oh, I, I've looked at the blockchain, I've looked at the contract, and there are indeed only 10 of these. And they belong to these 10 different wallets, or wait a minute, these two belong to the same wallet, or whatever it is. Like it's all out there to kind of be seen and be discovered and be validated. And then over-
1: Hi, this
3: is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools,
4: one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
5: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
0: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
5: For time,
1: as those objects physical or as those objects exchange, that's also tracked by the blockchain. Correct. So if I sold my one of ten to you, then your name would be reflected in the record.
2: Or the wallet address. Right? It might not be my name. The interesting thing about this is that it is both public and anonymous right so what you see are you can see addresses but those addresses aren't necessarily correlated to an individual
1: so a lot of what i find really exciting about how all of this technology is applied in the fashion space it goes back to what you were saying earlier fashion plays such a big role in helping people express their identity And if lots of people are starting to spend a lot of time in virtual spaces, it seems natural then that they could use fashion as a vehicle for expressing their identity in those spaces.
2: Does that make sense to you? I think 100%. I think it's inevitable. I think that this is a generational shift. And I look at my 14-year-old, and she has spent the last year and a half living in a metaverse. She doesn't even know that word, right? But her school is on Zoom. She hangs out with her friends online in one form or another, actually in a whole bunch of different forms, right? In Instagram, in TikTok, in iMessage, in Fortnite, in um, Animal Crossing, in all of these different you know, metaverses, right? And so for them, having a digital collection, it's completely natural right? Some of them will have utility because they'll change the way that they play the game or that. Some will just be like the reason that we collect photos and everything else. It's like proof of existence. Look what happened to us even with photographs. You know, we used to take photographs and have them developed and hang them up in our homes. And there were many companies that thought, oh, this digital camera thing, like who wants that, right? And and the, you know, what we've ended up with, of course, is most kids don't even have physical photos, right? They only have collections of digital photos. And so I think that you could expect the same thing with many physical things. Why would I want a collection of stuff that no one can see when I can have a collection of digital stuff that everyone can see? I think for a younger generation, this is just going to become kind of natural and obvious.
1: Who in this space, virtual fashion, is exciting? Who are the kind of innovators, that we should know about, and why is what they're doing interesting?
2: It's really hard to say because it's so early, and I think that there are a lot of projects, Artifact, who I've spent a lot of time with. We're investors in. They're creating. You know, they're really applying this to streetwear, working with you know some of the coolest people in the space, and they're really close to ground level. You know, to me, like when they're working with someone like Piochus, like it's like you know they're right there, where kind of like. Finger on the pulse. But there are a lot of people doing interesting things. And some of them, I'm really excited actually about the things which are maybe less sexy, more scalable. I think that next year, when you buy a physical good, you are going to get a digital good from any company that is progressive.
1: Next year.
2: I've never in my life seen what the incumbents want from a business perspective so well aligned with what the new technology offers. Because if you look, every single company wants to drive more direct-to-consumer. So let's just take a brand that I have nothing to do with, Nike. Obviously, they are cutting retailers and driving direct-to-consumer. Adidas says the same thing in their their quarterly report. So why wouldn't it be the case that when you buy from Nike.com, you get a digital collectible, and when you buy from one of the other retailers, you don't. My guess is if they could drive one percentage point more in direct-to-consumer business, they'd do it, right? And so I think it's really inevitable that next year when you buy a physical good, you will also get a digital good from progressive retailers. And I think for a whole generation, the perceived value of a physical piece plus a digital piece is higher than a physical piece alone. So therefore, I think it will happen.
1: What about a digital piece alone? Do you see, there's some examples, Gucci's been doing this recently, big luxury fashion brands and fashion brands generally, do you see them in the foreseeable future getting into the place where they're just selling virtual goods?
2: I think they will, but to be honest, I think it's a mistake. I would wait longer if i were them i think it's inevitable but i think that you know the reason that nfts have taken off at the beginning of this year is because we have these nft marketplaces If you don't have a place to display these things then i think it doesn't exist right you know i can buy something digital and i can say it has value but if i don't have a marketplace where i can put it then it doesn't actually have the value that I say it does, right? Things are worth what people will pay for them. And that's why I say I'm excited about the things that happen at scale, where we start to get you know a collection of digital goods with our physical goods. We then start to take those into our metaverse worlds. So I think that once I can take that digital shoe and it changes my character in Fortnite, ah, now the dominoes start to fall. And now you can sell me a digital good only right? But you need that second piece. You need the place for it to live in the digital world before it's really exciting to sell a virtual piece. So I think that if I'm a brand, there's only downside in selling digital pieces right now, because either it doesn't sell for enough money, and that's a bad story, or it sells for too much money, and then it's worth less next year, and that's a bad story. Where if I just work on getting digital with physical at scale, the other side of that marketplace will show up, and now digital goods will make sense. I think that's where this goes. So
1: digital is in a way the gateway to purely virtual down the road because consumers and you know everyone out there needs to kind of go on that journey of like placing more value in these things Correct. and being able to display those things in virtual
2: spaces. Yeah, I need to have, you know, it's almost like we Instagram gave digital photos so much more value right? So we need those kind of Instagram-like experiences for our digital goods. But that also then means that we need collections. I wish that I had, you know, a digital version of my vinyl collection. I would love that. You know, and and by the way, my Spotify and Apple Music collections are not the same because I haven't invested the same as I have into my vinyl collection, right? But if I had that digital representation of that collection and a place to show it off, mm, now I could see buying the digital vinyl and putting that in my collection and showing that off. But I think that's the way it has to go. It has to start with digital, then there'll be another side of that marketplace, and then people will want those virtual goods because they'll have, they'll have value and they'll have meaning in an ecosystem.
1: So let's say five years from now, so it's not too far out into the future. No. If next year you think people are going to be doing the digital opportunity, the digital and physical object. Five years from now, in the fashion space, what does this technology mean for big fashion companies and for fashion customers?
2: I feel like we always need to be a little careful because, I, you know, my experience has told me we think this stuff is coming sooner than it is, right? So, And I think in this kind of cryptocurrency world, if we look at user adoption, we're in kind of 1997. Right? So that means that the iPod comes in 2002 and the iPhone comes in 2008, right? So we probably do, 2007. We, we, we probably do have a little longer yeah. right, than we think. But again, we had a music subscription service called Rhapsody in 2001, 2002 as well. So the early signs of these future ecosystems do show up pretty early. I think that because of that alignment with direct-to-consumer, This will happen more quickly than most things. It wasn't the case that major record labels had a big incentive, right? It wasn't the case that LVMH had a big incentive to go early into e-commerce. I actually think that a company like Nike does have a big incentive to be first when it comes to digital collectibles. So I think that will make it move a little faster. So what are
1: the biggest misconceptions about this technology? Because everybody's talking about it. What do you think are the things that people don't really understand?
2: I think it's just the case that, which always happens, where the storytelling gets ahead of the reality. And this is exactly what caused the dot-com bubble in the late 90s, and the excitement was real, and it was deserved. You know, the internet has changed humanity. The storytelling, I think, got a little bit ahead of the reality. There was more work to do before all these things were built up, and I think it's the same here. You know, People want to kind of fast forward to the end, but A, you can't see the end, B, this technology is still really nascent. The way that we do something like NFTs, it's not very mature. There are lots of problems with the existing ecosystem, which, you know, if you follow the news, you can kind of see them all over the place. That's not because it's bad, it's just because it's early. I think that the biggest misconception that people have though, is that there's kind of like a digital and a physical. But we have one consciousness, right? I mean, I can read Twitter and get pissed off. I don't get digital pissed off, right? I get pissed off in the same place in consciousness yeah. that I get upset if somebody pulls in front of me in traffic. So I think that, that we, we kind of need to let go of this notion of kind of, oh, that's digital, this is physical. And I, I hope that 2020 has shown everyone I can talk to my mom on FaceTime and I'm still talking to my mom. It's not digital talking to my mom. And so I think that that's the other big misconception is that we like to like make these big buckets of, oh, that's digital, oh, that's physical. But the reality is, again, we have these kind of core instincts to connect with people, to share, to be individuals. And we're going to do those in both the physical and the digital space. And in fact, they might relate to one another. I do also think, and we're already seeing it, That the more time we spend looking at our phones, the more premium in-person experiences become. They become more valuable. So I, I think that we just, as a species, we're just going to learn how to deal with this. You know, what is it we value? And, you know, what can we kind of accomplish in each of these realms? But I think that we need to think of it as a continuum and a spectrum and not this hard line between digital and physical.
1: Just now you were mentioning all of the speculation and the bubble that built around the internet and the dot-com bubble. Are we in a bubble now when it comes to cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin? Because there's been so much volatility in that space. And how does that volatility impact some of these opportunities that you've been discussing?
2: In many ways, the volatility is what makes people pay attention to it. And then the more people pay attention to it, the more people get kind of like roped into the narratives and then it becomes more real as a result. So I think in in many ways the volatility kind of propels it forward because these stories are real. Like I said before, I'm yet to meet an intelligent person who kind of like pokes their head in here and finds nothing. So I, I think that you know really just kind of bringing more people along for the ride means it will continue to increase over time. Also because it's kind of controlled by the masses and not controlled by the few. I think it will both be volatile but also kind of gather strength over time, right? Because it doesn't need, you know, just a few investment banks to believe in it. It really has this kind of underlying story. At the same time, I think it's really natural that, that you're going to ha- you're going to have these ebbs and flows exactly because of that. Because something is really exciting and everyone has FOMO and they don't want to miss out and they run in and then the bubble pops for some reason and it falls back down. But, you know, what has happened over the years of of cryptocurrency is that happens. The bubble pops. It finds a new level that's higher than the previous level. Same thing happens. It runs up. It finds a new level that's higher than the previous level. So, you know, I, I think we can, we can bet that that will keep going. There will be changes. I'm sure, though. These are technologies. So there will be innovations. There will be paradigm shifts. There will be new narratives that take over the old ones. So I, I think it will be quite dynamic. And I don't think it will be zero sum or winner take all. And I hope that's one thing that's different. From what the internet has done the internet has made it you know look at what shopify has done this year they have made it so that it's free for the first million every year okay that's a great value proposition for the customer but that to me is just internet companies doing what internet companies do which is get enough scale to starve anyone who doesn't have the same scale so my hope is is that there will be a broader spectrum and and more decentralization in this future than we had in, in the internet how does it- augmented
1: reality intersect with this space?
2: Augmented reality, and I would say artificial intelligence, are as big, if not bigger, than everything that that we've talked about. I mean, we all use augmented reality in some way every day, we just don't call it that. I came home from the airport using Waze, which is like a cartoon version of the city, right? I, I think that we're sort of still lacking that iPhone of augmented reality. But the notion that I'm going to get more information about my, my surroundings, I mean, I already do with my phone in many ways, but that will just improve and improve and improve. And I think that, you know, when you start to play that into like digital fashion and digital art, there will be this really blurry line between what we see in the physical world and what we see in the digital world. It might be more information, it might be more imagery, it might be, you know, I I just think that that's inevitable. And I think at this point in our lives, if I told you, live today without interacting with any artificial intelligence, I think you'd have a very hard time making it through the day. You'd basically have to put your phone in a drawer and not use anyone else's phone. You know, do you like to, the world to do it.
1: Before.
2: Yeah. It would be, and, and before you know, because every time you use Google or use Instagram or use Google Maps or use Waze or there's artificial intelligence behind that. So I think we're all already, already living in kind of a surprising future.
1: I'd like to understand the psychology of the kinds of people that collect. I was watching the video that Christie's put up of people watching the price tick up and up on that digital artwork. Yeah. Uh, that he sold, I think, for $69.3 million. What is the underlying kind of human instinct or emotion that leads someone to value something in that they can't touch for that much money?
2: Yeah. I mean, have you ever been to a yard sale in the U.S.? Yeah. I would like to understand what causes people to collect little trolls with orange or blue hair, but I think that the reality is that human beings collect things. I think it's about proof of existence. Again, why do you buy the shot glass when you go to Las Vegas, right? It's not to pour shots in at home, it's to show your friends, I was in Las Vegas. You know, I think that as human beings we have some innate desire to sort of prove we existed and those things really happened to us. I think that the digital collectors today it's so early they're speculators but there are you know like in anything there are people who see something just like in art there are people who see something before anyone else and i think that any time that you give creative people when you give a creative community a canvas it's just a matter of time until they blow your mind you know and i think that that's what's going on here all of those things some people they just see something and they go uh you know, look at what's going on with this Bored Ape Yacht Club thing, right? It, it went from kind of a joke that was derivative of something else to like an entire community. And these people are passionate about this thing. They've like banded together and they collectively have created value. So I think that you'll see that over and over and over and over. And I'm, I'm sure when Glenn Danzig was making seven inches, you know, in the late '70s and early '80s. He didn't think like someday this thing is going to sell for ten thousand dollars. But this is just what happens, you know. People create most of it ends up with zero value, but some of it ends up with inordinate value. Again, I don't think that that's different in the digital world than the physical world.
1: What are the obstacles? We've talked about this five-year vision and maybe a vision beyond that, where this becomes commonplace, where pretty much every physical object we buy. Comes with some kind of digital twin. Yeah. What are the obstacles for this market to continue to progress and develop?
2: There are so many. You ha- you really have to think of it as the Wild West. We've just opened up the West, and we're rushing out there to find opportunity. But there's danger everywhere, from rattlesnakes to murderers, right? And I think that we're opening up this digital universe. You've got kind of all of the speculation you know i think it's worth this will it be worth that tomorrow i mean that's that's dangerous you know we could look at what happened between world war one and world war two with the great depression for a lot of examples of how you build new economies and the danger in, in building new economies and i think this is big on that scale and then we just don't have the customer experiences yet you know we've got to go from where we are today with our web 2 phones to where we're going to be tomorrow with our web 3 value and there's a lot of space between that i really do think it is kind of 1997 and then i think that there are these things on a like a truly global level you know whenever um, somebody asks me about the price of bitcoin this week i try to turn the conversation to do you think that the us dollar is going to be the world's reserve currency in the same way that it is today 10 years from now, 25 years from now, you know, China is taking a real run at making that not happen. You have a country like El Salvador, which is on the dollar standard, adding Bitcoin as legal tender, which by the way, they wouldn't have done if the technology of the dollar did what they needed it to do, right? So I think that there are some big threads to pull here. And and I think that, that all of this digital asset stuff changes humanity at least as much as the internet did. You know, and I think that if I go back to 1997, we all believed that the internet was going to change humanity, but none of us predicted Brexit or Donald Trump. You know, I think that there are definitely a lot of kind of unforeseen, very big, very material changes out there.
1: One of the things which I'm talking to people about is how the fashion industry needs to change. You know, this has been a year of great disruption in the world. Do you know the author Arundhati Roy, no. just this Indian author? She talked about the pandemic. Historically, pandemics have been a portal. When the world enters a pandemic, it has the opportunity to change. You leave behind, like the heavy baggage of the past, and you enter the kind of end of the pandemic. Reinvented. You know, if you were yeah. thinking about the fashion industry before and after all of this,
2: what do you think needs to change? I think that they have changed over the course of this, and I can see it in, on the big and the small. At the LVMH level, again, there was this big switch where instead of thinking about digital revenue as today's 8% of revenue they started thinking about it as tomorrow's 35% of revenue and that changes everything you know it changes the way you set your priorities also i think the pandemic did allow them to you know make big changes that were difficult to make before because it's not broke don't fix it but okay now we have this moment let's change our stance toward the future and then drive into the future. But I also see it in smaller brands. I look at, you know, a brand like Satisfy running, which, you know, during the pandemic, they had to cancel a lot of money worth of, of orders to retail because they weren't sure if those retailers were going to be able to to pay them. But then they have to, you know, dig in and go, well, what do we do instead? And they moved to a model of, you know, monthly drops, more storytelling. They added an editor-in-chief. They started sponsoring athletes. Necessity is the mother of invention, right? So I think that, you know, there, there are many people in this pandemic that have had to go, okay, this is a new world to work with now. And... I wasn't changing it before because it was dangerous to change it, now I don't have a choice. So I think absolutely, I think the entire world of fashion is is different today than than it was before. It's still the same things that we said five years ago. Five years ago we said we're moving from mass to niche and we're moving away from kind of marketing and toward quality experiences, quality storytelling, et cetera. So I think that it's all kind of the same direction that we knew five years ago, but it's, but it's definitely firmly on a new trajectory, I think, so post-pandemic. Thinking,
1: I've been thinking about this as a balance of two things, profit and purpose. And so you've just covered the profit side, which is like there's different ways this industry can engage with its customers to make money, right? What about the purpose side, the meaning side?
2: To me, they're the same because you're, you're, you're coming at your customers with what they're asking you for, right? So I think that because we're kind of moving from mass to niche, if you're in a niche culture, you need to feel close to that brand. So whatever is going to make you feel close to that brand is what that brand needs to do. So I I don't think it's, I don't think purpose is the same for everyone, right? Because, you know, for some people, irreverence is what draws the brand to them. Where for some people, changing the world is what draws them to that brand. So I think it's really got to be on brand for the brand. But I do think it's about, you know, building communities and building culture. I mean, what we always said at Beats is we don't do advertising. We create culture. And I think that that's really what brands need to do. So if it's a culture of purpose, well, that's what's right for the brand. If it's a culture of irreverence, that could be right for the brand as well. And I think that mostly what they need is they need to have a real connection to their audience. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having me.
1: What We Wear says a lot about who we are. Yet fashion is also a $2.5 trillion global industry that touches everyone on Earth. I'm Imran Ahmed. I first started trying to make sense of the business of fashion 15 years ago, as it was being transformed by technology, globalization, and shifting consumer values. Now I'm on a journey to see how fashion is recalibrating after the pandemic to balance profit with purpose. This is the Business of Fashion Show. Join me to discover how fashion shapes business, culture, and identity, and to meet the people forging fashion's future.
4: Go to shopify.com slash B-O-F to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash B-O-F.
0: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
3: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
5: Flimsy stands slowing you down? Well, it's time to upgrade. Armadillo builds durable, North American-made tablet stands and kiosks. We're so confident, we offer a lifetime warranty. So, elevate your business and visit armadillo.com. That's A-R-M-O-D-I-L-O dot com and use code ACAST for 5% off. Armadillo. Built to last. Designed to impress.